All right, welcome everybody to Skype a Scientist Live. Today we're talking all about space. Um, if you have any questions, please submit them to the Q&A uh, function and only submit your questions once um, because I'll see them. I promise I read every single one, uh, even if that's a lot. Um, and other than that, oh, our program is completely run by donations. So if you can help support our program, you can do so with one-time donations at uh, paypal.me slash Skype a scientist or uh, make monthly donations at uh, patreon.com slash Skype a scientist. Um, I think that's it. So Jesse, take it away. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Jesse Shanahan. I am an astrophysicist and a data scientist. So I kind of, I have two jobs. Um, but today we're talking about space and in particular, my research focuses on supermassive black holes. Really, really cool. Um, I study how to find those black holes, uh, how they act, and we find them in other galaxies. So I like to study how the black holes affect other galaxies and, you know, where we can find them because some of them are hidden. And so that's that's a really fun part of my job is I like to search for the hidden black holes. Um, but I, like I mentioned, I also work as a data scientist. And so um, my, my other job, I work with artificial intelligence and how we can use it for humanitarian causes. Um, but I'm really excited to be here and to answer all of your questions. I love talking about space. Um, and I think, uh, Sarah, you mentioned you'll be, you'll be explaining or telling me the questions. Which ones? Because yeah. I, I have the Q&A all up here, but there's a lot of questions. So. Oh, totally. Yeah, I'll go through uh, and okay. ask them out loud. Okay, so for our first question, uh, can a black hole suck in our solar system? So this is, this is actually a really interesting question. And so I'm glad somebody asked it because this is, this is the tough thing with calling something a black hole. It's actually a really bad name for what it is. It's not a hole there's actually an object there. And that's what not a lot of people realize is that while these objects are dark, we can't, we can't see them, it's still an object, it's not a hole. So you won't you know, fall down some kind of hole in space if you, if you get pulled in, but black holes can, because of how strong their gravity is, they can pull other objects in and kind of like pull them onto themselves. And so if we had a big enough black hole, it would probably take a lot of time but yeah, a black hole could pull our solar system, planet by planet, our sun, asteroids, all into it eventually. But thankfully, the biggest black holes that could do that are really, really far away. So we don't have to worry about that. Well, thank God. Yeah, um, right? <laughs> so if you were to be like swallowed by a black hole, would you just get like, pu like pulled toward it? Like what, ha what exactly, where do you go? So it's kind of like if anyone's taken a bath, as funny as this, this is, if anyone's taking a bath and you pulled the plug on your bath and the water swirls around and then it goes down a hole, it's like, it's kind of like that, you know, except maybe at the bottom of your drain, there's a little like a rocky or metallic or something like all kinds of materials there all crushed down into a tiny, tiny, tiny space. So you would swirl around it for a little bit and then eventually you'd land. I mean, you wouldn't be alive anymore, unfortunately, we wouldn't be able to survive that. But that's what happens to all the stuff that moves around a black hole is eventually, like pulling the drain, it circles in and slowly, 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 eventually will fall onto the black hole, which isn't a hole. <laughs> cool. Um, what's the farthest anyone's ever gone into space? 
So a person, I mean, unfortunately, humans haven't gone very far. We've gone to the moon, which is, which is really great, um, but we haven't been there in, in a, quite a long time. However, um, telescopes and, and space probes that we've sent, we've actually left our solar system. Uh, the Voyager space probes that were sent out, oh Lord, I think late, late 70s, I think, um, those recently uh, left our solar system for the first time. So in the grand scheme of things, we haven't gone very far, but that's what a lot of people don't realize about space is there's a lot of distance between stuff. Like when you see pictures and you see all of these stars and, and galaxies and incredible things, and it looks like the sky is really busy. Actually, there's so much space in between all of those objects. It takes a really long time to travel anywhere in space. Cool. Um, how big are black holes? So this is also a really cool question because there's different kinds of black holes. So I think maybe some of you know about the smallest kind of black hole, which forms when a really, really, really big star goes supernova. And so these ones are the mass. So the amount of stuff that it has is maybe 10 times the mass of our sun. But this is where the question gets a little bit tricky is when you say, how big are they? Are you talking about their mass? Like how much stuff they have? Or are you talking about how like wide it is? And that's the interesting thing about black holes. They have a lot of stuff, but all that stuff is crammed into a really small space. So actually, um, even though these, the, the smallest black holes have more mass than our sun, they'd actually be smaller than our sun because all of that stuff is really crammed into a small space. Um, the black holes that I study though are really, really massive. So they have billions of times the mass of our sun. And they, I would say, are maybe in width about the size of our solar system. So, but if you think about it, billions and billions and billions of suns crammed into a space the size of our solar system. So they're still, for, their, for the amount of stuff they have, they're actually quite small. Cool. Um, do you name your black holes? So yes, actually, um, black holes are named. Unfortunately, they don't have really cool names. They're often named after the galaxy. If they're, if they're a supermassive one, there's usually only one of them and they're at the very center of the galaxy. So they're often named after the galaxy that they exist in. Other black holes are often named maybe by the star that they used to be or a star that if they're kind of orbiting a star or near another star, they'll be named kind of like that. And some of them have their own names, but they aren't very cool sounding names. Unfortunately, they're just a bunch of letters and numbers. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite part about black holes? Oh, that's, there's so much, oh my goodness. Okay, how to think about my favorite thing. I think, I think what I like about them is just how, how much they represent what we don't know. And so the supermassive ones that I study, we've actually detected them as early as a couple million years after the Big Bang. And so this is really interesting because that means they form really fast. Right? And remember what I just said, these are billions of suns. That, that's how much stuff is here, billions of suns worth of stuff. And somehow we managed to get that much stuff really fast. I know millions of years doesn't sound fast, but for astronomy, that's very fast. And so it's a big mystery. How did these black holes form so fast? How can we can see them so quickly after the Big Bang? And they're also, they're the brightest objects in the universe a lot of times. And so I think that's, I think that's really incredible. Yeah, that is totally incredible. 
Um, what's your favorite uh, planet? Ooh, my favorite planet. Um, probably Saturn. Um, I really like the rings and my favorite moon orbits Saturn, which is Enceladus. And so I like Saturn mostly because I like Enceladus a lot. It's a really cool moon that has um, an ocean underneath its surface. So its surface is mostly ice and then there's a really deep ocean underneath. And so we think that if we're looking for ice, uh, life on other planets or moons, that that might be one of the best places to look, as in Enceladus's really deep oceans, which is cool. So then when you say that you think aliens are real? Um, I would say that I think it's inevitable that there, there is probably life on other worlds, but it's going to be hard for us to find until we develop better technology. Because like I said, everything's so far away. Um, you know, one of the ways that I like to, to think about it is if you were to shrink our sun down to the size of a grapefruit, and let's say I have, I, I live in DC, so on the east coast of the United States. So if I plop a grapefruit down right here, and there's another grapefruit all the way in California on the other side of the United States, that's about the relative distance between our sun and the nearest star. And so when you think about it, if I just wanted to look at the closest star, that'd be like a tiny, tiny little speck, like if you draw, like just a tiny dot on your, on your paper, a little telescope that size near a grapefruit, trying to look at a grapefruit in California. And now we're talking about galaxies. That's, you know, many much, 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 much farther away. So unfortunately it can be, it can be really tough, but I think that it's inevitable. So I'm hoping I'll see it in my lifetime that we find uh, extraterrestrial life. I hope so too. Me too, um, yeah. uh, How did you get interested in studying space? So, I, I, can, I can remember being really little and I, I loved science all the time. So, I mean, I love all science to be honest. Like right now in my office, I'm looking around and I have a microscope, I have plant samples, I have, you know, a lot of things for a lot of different kinds of science. And I, I, I liked science as a kid, but I think space to me always just felt so big and so unknown that I think it's kind of that mentality a lot of people have for exploring things, you know, like when you read about explorers kind of discovering the unknown, I would say the two things that remind me the most of that are, are oceans and also space. And so it's kind of that, to use a Star Trek reference, it's kind of the final frontier, you know, it's this unknown, mysterious, vast, and incredibly beautiful place. And it's really weird, really weird stuff happens in space. And so I think that's what makes it so interesting to me. What's the equation behind you on the blackboard? Oh, Lord. Um, so this, that's actually related to artificial intelligence. Um, it's, a, it's an equation that is behind something called a reinforcement learning algorithm. And I know that's a lot of like terms, so I'm going to break it down. Basically, it's a way that we can teach computers to make decisions about situations where they don't have all the information. Because typically, if you think about it, you know, maybe I want to have my computer do something really simple, like two plus two. I'm giving the computer all the information it needs. I'm saying two and two, and here's what you're going to do to it. You're going to add them. So that's a really easy thing. But if you think about trying to have computers help us with life, a lot of times in, in everyday situations, we don't have all of the answers. And so reinforcement learning is basically, it's like a mouse in a maze. Okay, and there's cheese scattered throughout the maze. 
but the, the, the goal is for the, the mouse to navigate the maze. So the mouse has to think, well, do I want to spend all of my time looking for cheese and then I never leave the maze? Should I go right for the exit and never get any cheese? Or should I do a balance of getting some cheese and also getting through the maze? And so situations may be like, uh, let's think uh, maybe like a, like a video game is actually a really good example. If you want to teach a computer to play a video game, you have to teach it to balance exploring around, discovering maybe new areas in the video game, and also accomplishing whatever it needs to accomplish. And so that equation is really key in, in uh, teaching a computer how to both explore something that's unknown while still trying to do what you want it to do. It's like really general. So, I mean, we can talk more about that if you want, um, but that's basically <laughs> what that equation is. Cool. Um, what's your favorite part of your job? I think my favorite part of my job is that I, I mostly work with um, clients who, who aren't scientists. And so they have a lot of problems and I get to help them solve those problems, but it's, it's a lot like solving a puzzle. And that's kind of one of my favorite things to do because I'll, I'll talk to somebody and, and they'll, have a, they'll have a problem that they need help with, but they're not gonna tell it to me like, in terms of a math problem. They're not gonna tell it to me like a scientist would tell it to me. They just describe their problem. And so it's, it's a puzzle to be able to figure out how I can use science and math to help them solve that problem. And then also I have to build, I have to build the science and math tool to help them uh, solve their problem as well. And I think it's very rewarding to help people with science. And so I think that's my favorite part about my job. That is a great part of being a scientist. Isn't um, it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, so where do you work and who do you work for? So I work for a consulting company called Booz Allen. Um, and a consulting company, it's basically like you hire people to either help you with your job or to help you solve problems. And so I'm in a very special section that works on science and technology. And it's almost like, even though I work for Booz Allen, other people come to Booz Allen to hire scientists, to hire all kinds of people to help them. And so, you know, maybe you work for, um, maybe you work for the NBA, for example. We actually have worked for the NBA. And you have, you really wanna know, um, is there some way that we can help prevent players from getting injured? But maybe you don't have all the people in your particular organization to, to do that kind of problem solving. So then you would go to a company like Booz Allen and say, do you have people? And then we would kind of work for the NBA, even though we're working for Booz Allen and help them solve their problems. So my client is FEMA. Um, FEMA is the emergency management agency for the US government. They handle like when there's a disaster or when, you know, like with the coronavirus and there's people getting sick, um, they help people respond and recover to disasters. And so it's really important to use a lot of science for that so that we can make sure that we are either maybe detecting things like hurricanes as soon as we can. Um, if there's ways to prevent the disasters, we're using science to, to research that. And if we can't prevent them, we're using science to help protect people and also to help them recover after those disasters. Very cool. Um, so what did you study in college and how did you get to where you are? Um, and what does a day-to-day -day, like day look like in your job? Oh boy. Okay, so yeah, we're going to go on an adventure for a little bit because I 
honestly did not know for the longest time what I wanted to do. And sometimes I still, there's a lot that I want to do. And so I still kind of wonder if I should do other things. Um, when I went to college, I actually studied linguistics and linguistics is the science of language. And so I, I particularly focused on uh, North African linguistics. So I studied Arabic and French and I studied a lot of philosophy as well. Um, and then I, after that, I switched and I went to graduate school for astrophysics. Um, and then after graduate school, I went into data science. And so I think I really love having a strange background like that. And I found that it's actually, it makes me a better scientist to have all of these different things that I've learned. I didn't learn just, just astronomy or just math. I learned a whole bunch of different, different sciences. And that makes it a lot easier to solve really hard problems because I've got a lot more things that, a lot more tools in my toolbox. Um, so I would say that the best thing I think that has come out of my background is that I've learned not to maybe, that it's okay not to follow the traditional path. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of scientists that I've worked with who, who did, they always knew what they wanted to study. They went to college for it, they went to graduate school for it, they're doing it now. And that's awesome if you, if you, if there's one thing that you love and you want to do it, go for it. But it's okay to also not know and to always want to be studying something new. That's actually why I switched into data science is that I loved so many different scientific fields and I kept wanting to switch and I was worried. I thought, am I ever going to be able to, to have one career? Am I going to settle down and pick one scientific thing that I love? And I always struggled to pick. And so I actually sat down on my computer one day and I Googled, is there, is there a job where I can do a scientific approach to problems, but all different kinds of problems? And that's actually what data scientists do, is they use the tools of science, but they apply it to all different kinds of problems. And so that way, it's almost like I get to study everything. Um, but so I know that's a really weird background, but that's, that's the great thing about science is that there's a lot of different ways to do it and a lot of different ways to become a scientist. Cool. Um, how close is the nearest black hole? Um, so the nearest supermassive black hole is actually at the center of the Milky Way. Um, and I have a cool, I have a cool little uh, thing that I would like to show you. So give me one second here. I'm going to find the GIF. So there is a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. It's called Sagittarius A star. I told you the names are not so great. Um, but it's really, really, really incredible how we discovered this black hole. And so this is something that I find really amazing. So I am going to figure out if I, if I know how to share this screen. All right. Can everybody see um, the fuzzy blobs? Let me see if I, I need to pull maybe this back up. And just really quick, sorry to interrupt, but if you need signing, um, you need to toggle your view options so that you can see myself, Jesse, and Aaron. I see. Um, okay. Is um, let me see. It's okay. That's not on you, Jesse. That's um, for the audience. They can. Um, of course. Click I want to make sure that this is accessible. So, oh, yeah. how do I share? Is there an option? There's no way to share screen without. Aaron and I disappearing, but uh, for the people who need signing, you can uh, oh, take a look. there's see. different view options that you can use. 
And one of them, I wish I could do it, like automatically make it happen for everyone, but you need to toggle that so you can see uh, all of us and the screen share at the same time. Okay, so I actually, just in case, okay. in case anyone has trouble with this, I'm just gonna share my whole screen. Oh, let's see, can I? I've spotlighted Erin, I think, so hopefully, oh, I thought that was gonna make her big. So is there a way that I can make this bigger or will people be able to figure out how to get the, it's okay. Um, so let me actually, I'll, if people can, can toggle Aaron uh, themselves, then I will just share the, the browser. Is that okay? Um, you're muted. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I think this is okay. Um, so what you, what everybody's looking at here is, these are some stars. I know they're really fuzzy, but these are stars at the very center of our galaxy. And so I'm, when I play this video, I want, we're going to play it a couple of times, but just watch the stars. And what you're going to see is that the stars are going to be moving around something, okay? So you can see, we're zooming in a little bit here, all right? Zooming in a lot. Um, but in particular, watch the star that loops really fast here by the plus. Boom, did you see that? So again, watch that, watch that star right here near the plus and look how fast it goes. So this is actually how we discovered a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, is we were observing stars and we noticed that these stars were moving really fast and they were moving as if they were orbiting something that we couldn't see. And so thanks to physics, there's a relationship between how fast those stars are moving and the amount of mass that that object has in the center. So we were able to figure out how much mass it had we were able to figure out how big it was based on, you know, you can see the star going around it. And what that actually told us was that the only object that could have that much mass and be that small is a supermassive black hole. And so this is the nearest uh, supermassive black hole to our galaxy. And like I said, it's called Sagittarius A star. And you can actually look up a whole bunch of different videos that show this particular observation. Sometimes they've highlighted the stars in the orbit so it can be easier to see. Um, but this is, this is the closest supermassive black hole. There are a lot of um, smaller ones, but I'm not sure which one is actually the closest. Cool. Um, if you discover a black hole, do you get to name it? Um, unfortunately not. However, uh, what you can do is that you, you get to publish that, you get to publish a paper. And I know that maybe doesn't sound as cool, but in, in a lot of research science, that's actually quite important. And then your name gets attached to it because anytime anyone wants to talk about that black hole, they have to make, they have to kind of credit you and say, you know, they have to be able to put your name next to it and say, you know, this was the person who discovered it. So that's kind of, even though you don't get to name it, your name is always gonna be attached to it. Cool. Um, do you like Star Wars? <laughs> I love all science fiction, honestly. I'm a little more of a Star Trek fan, but I did grow up watching Star Wars, so I do really like it. Cool. Um, what's dark matter? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, so guess what? We don't know. And that's really, that's tough. That's the tough thing in space is that there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And so you might, you might ask, well, if we don't know what it is, how do we know it exists? And this is a really cool story. 
And it, it starts with a really amazing astronomer named Vera Rubin. And what she discovered is when she was looking at, just like with, with the supermassive black hole in our galaxy, she was looking at how fast stars were, were moving in other galaxies. And so what we learned in physics, like I mentioned, is that remember there's a relationship between how fast those stars go and how much mass they're orbiting. And what she found out was that, you know, when we kind of determined how much mass was in that galaxy based on the stars, the gas, other stuff like that, what she discovered is the numbers didn't add up. The stars were moving as if there was a whole lot of mass in that galaxy, but she couldn't see it. And so when she tested her theory and she looked at a lot of other galaxies, she found the same thing. These stars were, th their speeds weren't matching up. Their speeds were right. They were going way too fast. And so what she actually discovered is that there's a lot of matter in these galaxies we can't see. Dark matter. And so that's why we call it that. We, we can't see it. We can't really detect it, kind of like a black hole. All we can do is see its effect on the things around it. And the really incredible thing, and this just, this boggles my mind, is that when you look at a galaxy, a really beautiful galaxy, and so I'm gonna share another, another picture here, so make sure that you toggle your view so that you can see Erin if you need signing. Um, I'm gonna show you how big all of that dark matter is in a galaxy. And so this is just, this is really, really mind-blowing because you might, you might see beautiful pictures of a galaxy, okay? And you might think, oh, maybe there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit around there or something. Actually, even though those galaxies look really, really big, the most stuff in that galaxy is actually dark matter. And so that's what we're seeing here. Um, I'm gonna open this in a new tab and we're gonna zoom in. So this is the galaxy, little tiny galaxy. All, I mean, this is, this is the amount of dark matter, is the gray that you're seeing. So actually, when you look at a galaxy, what you're not seeing is that it exists in this giant bubble of dark matter. And so if you look at, you know, let's just look at a, a galaxy, maybe like Andromeda, we'll look at a spiral galaxy. So maybe this galaxy, this is a really beautiful one. Um, when we see this galaxy, you might say, oh yeah, this looks very big, right? Look at these huge arms. It's very beautiful. This is a spiral galaxy. But what we're not seeing, remember, is that this is existing in a bubble of dark matter that's so big picture. It's, it's outside of what the picture was looking at. And so that to me is really incredible that there's so much stuff in our universe and we don't know what it is. Actually, 96% of the stuff in our universe, we have no idea what it is. The stuff we can see, you know, these stars, this galaxy, gas, dust, you, me, our computers, all of that is only about 4% of what's in the universe. The rest of it, we don't know. And that's really cool. That's one of the things I think about space that is amazing is we only know 4%. That's a really big mystery. That's a really big puzzle to solve and a really hard one. That's, that's wild. Um, yeah. How close is the biggest, is the next galaxy over? 
So that's actually a harder question than you, you, might, you might think. So the next biggest, like big galaxy is Andromeda. And Andromeda is part of our local group. And so we have like a little bit of a galaxy family and we've got lots of other galaxies there, but Andromeda is the closest one. However, the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, we actually have companion galaxies. And so these are smaller galaxies that orbit around the Milky Way. And so they're not considered like Andromeda is the next galaxy that is not orbiting us. That's kind of its own, its own galaxy. But we have like, we have little, we have little companions that are following us. And um, those are called the Magellanic Clouds. And there are a couple of other ones as well. But if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you get to look up in the night sky and you can see the Magellanic Clouds. And I think that's really amazing. I live in the Northern Hemisphere. So unfortunately, when I look up in the sky, especially in DC, I can't see galaxies. But if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you get to look up in the sky and you can see the Milky Way's companion galaxies. And those are the closest galaxies to us. Super cool. Um, yeah. Do you think that people will ever live on Mars? You know what? I think so. And I think it's a, that will be an incredible accomplishment. I really... I think there's a lot that needs to go into thinking about how we do that in the right way. Because the other thing I love about space, that's maybe not as much about the science, is that space is like, it's kind of like a clean slate. If we, as human beings, we make mistakes when we're learning stuff. And so, you know, as we've evolved on Earth, we've made some mistakes about, you know, how we maybe treat our planet or how we, interact with each other, but space is kind of like a do-over. We get to try again. And a colony on Mars would represent a chance to take all that we've learned from thousands of years of civilization on Earth, and we get to take all that we've learned from that and do it better. And so I really want to, I really hope that when we do put a colony on Mars, we, we kind of think about that and we make sure that we are we are being our best selves and we're representing the best of humanity when we go and we start to live on other planets. Cool. Um, what happens when galaxies collide? Oh yes, I'm so glad someone asked this question. So this is called a merger and this is one of my favorite things to talk about because this is one of the ways you can grow a supermassive black hole. And so what happens when galaxies merge is a couple of things. Sometimes um, you might get two galaxies that pass each other by and they don't, fully, they don't fully combine, but they do stretch each other out. So actually this is another, another great time to show some more pictures. So I am going to pull up some pictures to show you. So again, make sure that you're having um, the right view settings that you need. Let's see. Here's an example of, one moment. Here's an example of a merger where the galaxies just passed each other by. So in this particular case, they're not gonna fully merge, maybe maybe in billions of years, but not, not so far. And you can see, look, this one's getting all stretched out. This one is kind of stealing some, some gas and dust from, from the other one, and they're kind of getting warped and changed. And so that's something that can happen a lot of times in galaxy mergers. Um, here's another example as well of that. And I think galaxy mergers look really, really cool. So these are actually called the mice because it looks like I think they've got little tails. Um, and so you can see again, right? Everything's getting stretched out. It's getting warped. They're pulling material off of each other. 
Here's an example, though, I think of what, what the question was more about, which is galaxies that are actually combining. And so this is really, really, really cool because don't worry, for the most part, stars don't collide, planets don't collide. We're actually going to merge someday with that galaxy I meant Andromeda. But you know what? We probably, other than our sky changing, we wouldn't notice a difference. So that's, remember, everything's really spread out in space, so we wouldn't really notice. However, one of the really cool things that happens is that when you merge two galaxies, you're putting a whole lot of star fuel into, into a new galaxy. So stars are made from, from gas, and sometimes a galaxy runs out of that gas, like your car might run out of gas, and it can't make stars anymore. However, if it starts to merge with another galaxy, it's like, it's like filling up your car again. You're giving this galaxy all of this new gas, and often it does what's called a, a starburst. And so what that actually looks like, are these, this is a good example. Um, so what this actually looks like, you see all this light blue in the bottom right? Those are brand new stars getting formed. So these two galaxies merged and it's like suddenly all these new stars are forming. And then in the centers of these galaxies, that black hole is gonna get a whole lot of food, a lot of gas, a lot of dust, and so it's going to grow. Sometimes you might even have galaxies that have two supermassive black holes at the center. And that's one way that we can tell if a galaxy merged with another one in its past. Maybe it looks normal, but when we look for the black holes, we see two. And that tells us that actually, this is two galaxies that, that merged one time. And so I think mergers are really, really neat because it's very, very important for how these galaxies grow and evolve. Awesome. Um, what can you tell us about wormholes? Are they, I don't even know if wormholes are real. I don't know anything. <laughs> so wormholes are a theory. Um, it was a theory uh, related, related to some of Einstein's work. And so this is something that we run into a little bit in astronomy where everything's really far away. Everything's hard to detect. Astronomy is a very difficult science like that. I like to tell people, Imagine that you're an alien in a really fast spaceship, okay? And you're gonna zoom by Earth. And you get to zoom by once, and you get to turn, and you get to take one picture, and that's it. So you turn, you take maybe a really good detailed picture, but you get one picture. Now, you have to go home to your alien planet and look at that picture, and you have to figure out everything about Earth, all of the different cultures, all of its history, all of the plants and animals on there, how it evolved, where it came from. That's like astronomy. A lot of times we get one picture and that picture is from one time in a galaxy's life or in a star's life. And we have to try to figure out all of this information from there. So what we do a lot of times is we use a lot of math. And math is, is very, very powerful for trying to figure out some of these problems. But what can happen is that the math can sometimes tell us things that we haven't seen in real life yet. And so that's what often makes a theory is that we'll, we'll be doing the math and we'll solve the math problem. And the answer says that it might be possible to have something we've never seen. And so that's actually what, um, what wormholes come out of is they come out of the math. They're not something that we've seen in real life, but it's something the math says might be able to happen. One of the other things that, you know, until we found black holes, Black holes were just math too. We thought, hmm, well, if 
this technically could happen, like the math says it could happen, but we haven't seen it. So we turned to astronomy, we started observing things, and eventually we gathered that evidence to show that the math was right. And the math's not always right. Sometimes we've made a mistake somewhere. Even the best physicists in their own way can make mistakes on their math homework. Um, but the best thing is when you have those theories, and wormholes are a cool theory, it's not quite real until you found the evidence in real life to support it. But what that, you know, to answer the question, because I wanted to put that caveat in there, um, wormholes are kind of like a bridge. And so the theory says that there should be, it is possible to have a bridge between universes. And so this, you're like, wait, universes? I thought, thought our universe is the only one. Well, sometimes the math says that it's possible to have multiple universes. And this gets really, really hard to understand because I think I've heard people sometimes mixing up what a galaxy is and what a universe is. So galaxies are what we just took, you know, we just looked at a bunch of pictures. They're collections of stars and gas, really, really, really big. All of the galaxies and planets and stars and gas and maybe aliens that exist that we can detect and see, that's our universe. We can never, well, right now with our technology, this is where we're stuck. Right? There's physics laws and math laws that apply to our universe. There are rules about how things can interact and how they move. However, there's the math says it might be possible to have universes. I like to kind of imagine it like a room full of bubbles, right? We live in one of those bubbles. We can't, as far as I know, we can't leave the bubble, but there might be other bubbles out there, but we can't see them, we can't detect them, we can't notice them but the math says that it might be possible to have a bridge between them. Like I said, unfortunately, we haven't found any evidence for this, but I think it's a really cool, a really cool thing that the math says might be possible. Awesome. Um, okay, one last question, uh, and then we're gonna ask our final two questions that we ask everybody. Okay, sure. so um, when did you start studying specifically black holes? How long have you been a scientist? So I think that depends on what your definition of a scientist is. And I might, you know, I think everyone might have their own definition of this. In my opinion, a scientist is somebody who is very curious about things that we don't know. They want to learn more and they try to use, you know, logic and math and, and good approaches. Like you're not guessing all the time. You know, you're, you're looking for evidence. You're trying to, you're trying to approach things in a, in a, a very specific way and you're trying to answer your problems so to me you all might be scientists you know it's about it's more about that mindset and about your curiosity and your interest so that might be you know a lot of people may disagree with me on that but I don't think that you need a PhD I don't think that you need a one particular kind of job I think that a lot of times it's about more how you approach those problems so I, I guess in that sense I like to joke and say I've been a scientist since I was a kid but I've been working as a scientist for about seven years. Um, and I was lucky that the first research project I was put on when I was first learning astronomy had to do with finding those pairs of black holes that I mentioned earlier. Like you look into the center of the galaxy and if you see two, it tells you that they merged. So that was my first project was looking for those pairs. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And so while I have, you know, in graduate school studied other things because it's important to, to learn about a lot of different, a lot of different things in space, 
I've always kind of loved black holes. They were the first thing I really studied and they're very mysterious and strange. And so I've been studying those for um, about five to six years. So like I said, those were the first, the first things I studied. So about as long as I've been a scientist uh, professionally. But I, I do really believe that, you know, if you have that curiosity and you want to learn to run a science experiment or you want to have a theory and test it, that you have, if you have that scientific mindset, that you're a scientist too. You know, there's always going to be things that you don't know and things that you have to learn. And the longer that you wait to feel like you really are a real scientist until you, I don't know, have learned all of these things, you're always going to find more things you don't know, more skills you need to learn, more classes maybe that you want to take. And so I think that if you have that mindset, you have that curiosity, then you're already a scientist. You just got to start working on being a better scientist. Awesome. Okay. So we have two final questions before <laughs> the end. One is, uh, what is one thing that you wish everybody in the world knew about your, your field of study. Mm -hmm. And the second question is, what do you wish everybody in the world knew about anything? Just like one piece of information you wish everybody knew. Oh, I can only pick one. Okay. Um, so I would say if there was one thing that I wish everybody knew about astronomy that, oh man, I can only pick one. Okay. <laughs> That's so hard. There's so many things I wish everyone knew. Um, you know, I would say that I wish everybody knew that astronomy benefits, benefits humanity in a way that I don't think a lot of people realize. So there's often this concern of, you know, is it really fair to go and study stars and planets and, and things that are far away when, you know, we need to build technology to help people on earth. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that incredible technology has been built by us trying to get to space and study space. So things like Google Maps, the GPS that you know you might use to navigate and to find your way, that's something that came about because of how we were studying and trying to get to space. And a lot of safety um, technologies, a lot of um, important uh, new materials for constructing uh, equipment came from, came from studying space. In fact, and I think this is pretty amazing, helium which yes it's it's the stuff in balloons that makes your voice sound funny but also i don't think a lot of people realize this helium is very necessary for creating um computer parts specifically the small computer parts in some of your video game consoles in a lot of medical equipment so helium is really really important guess how we found it we looked at the sun and we studied the sun and so that's actually where the word helium comes from is the Greek word for the sun, which is helios. And so just by studying something that maybe you didn't think the sun was really, you know, relevant to helping, helping people on earth, but we studied it and we found this incredible resource that we detected then on earth and we can use to build all kinds of technology. So that's something I wish everyone knew about space is that space, thinking about space through science fiction even, there's a lot of technology that came about from shows like Star Trek. So tablets, uh, your cell phones, a lot of that's inspired by people looking at space and daydreaming. So whether you're a writer and you're daydreaming about space or you want to be an astronomer, a lot of what we study actually does benefit people. So I think that's, that's what I wish everyone knew about astronomy. Well, one of many, many things. 
Um, and if there's one thing that I wish everybody knew about everything, I think honestly, I think it gets back to that, what I was talking about, about being a scientist earlier, is that anyone can be a scientist. And so one thing I didn't talk about today is that a lot of my uh, community service work involves uh, helping scientists with disabilities. And so this is something that I feel very passionate about. Um, and there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of argument sometimes about what a scientist is and who can be a scientist. And I think, like I said, if you're, if you're curious and you have a passion for, for science and you wanna experiment and test your theories and learn new things and you're always gonna remain curious about the things you don't know, then you can be a scientist regardless of anything else. And so I wish everybody would, would learn that and accept it because especially when I, when I do talks like this, a lot of times in classrooms or in schools, there's a lot of people who, you know, elementary school even, or middle school students who come to me and say, man, I wish I could be a scientist, but I'm not good at math. Or, you know, but, you know, I, I have dyslexia or I have ADHD or something. And honestly, they can all be scientists too. Everybody, if you have the curiosity and you're willing to, to really work hard and, and you wanna learn about anything, space, plants, animals, whatever it is that you're interested in, you can be a scientist. And I, I wish everybody in the whole world would start acting like that because we need, we need more creative scientists. And I'm hoping that, wow, there are, you know, there's 144 of you right now, so hopefully, Hopefully a lot of you will become those scientists because we need your minds, we need your creativity and your interest because there are all of these puzzles to solve and nobody can solve these puzzles by themselves. So that's what I hope all of you now learn and, and go and tell everyone else and maybe we can get the whole world to understand that because we need a lot more, we need a lot more curious and uh, passionate scientists. I think you're on mute, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. I have one important thing before everyone leaves. Um, we've had some uh, feedback that people feel like their questions aren't being answered. We get between 300 and 500 questions during these sessions. And so it's just impossible for me to get to everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you want an individual session with a scientist, you can do that. So if you want your family um, at home on the couch to talk to one scientist with just your family, we accommodate that. And you can absolutely do that if you want every one of your family's questions answered. So all you have to do, go to skypeascientist.com, click the four families uh, button, and then you can sign up. I know these sessions, it's tough to get to everybody, um, but we do them just so uh, everybody can hop in on one thing a day. So if you feel like your questions aren't being answered, I'm not ignoring you on purpose. Um, it's just we only have so much time. So check that out. Also, Sarah? If, yeah? Is there, I mean, so for, for family, um, you know, parents especially, if you are on social media, um, I love answering questions. People reach out to me on Twitter and ask questions and I love to answer them. So if, if that's something for you, I would say, please do reach out. Um, I also have a website where people can, can email me questions if you want. I honestly, I, I really do love answering questions and given that there are so many, I don't want anyone to feel like they've, you know, that they were left out. So if that's something, Sarah, that's okay, I can um, share, oh, yeah. uh, let's see, is there a chat or? Uh, no, we, we had to turn it off because. Oh, because there's so many. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here, I'm going to share just, is it okay for just a second if I share like a, a text file with, 
the sure is that okay all right um let's see here so oh there i guess there's a whiteboard i'm not going to try that i have no idea how to use that so if you want to reach out on twitter this is this is my twitter handle i'm gonna make it really 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 big so hopefully you guys can see that um, and if you want to reach out via, um, it's just, it's the same thing, just .us. And so if you reach out, that's the website, that's my, my Twitter. If you want to ask more questions about space, um, like many people around the United States, I'm stuck at home teleworking. And so it would be wonderful to hear from you to get more questions, um, and give me a nice break from, uh, you know, being stuck working at home. So hopefully that's, that's another thing that people can use. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, okay. We are going to be having a good week next week. We're talking about the moon on Monday. We're talking about uh, poop Wednesday, farts Friday. It's going to be a good, weird week. And if you guys know who Chuck Wendig is, he's an um, author and he's going to be on with us next week. So we're really oh excited about that. I know, I know. That's really cool. We're psyched. So that's going to be awesome. Um, yeah. So you can always check out our website, skypeascientist.com for all information about everything uh, from getting matched individually to what are, we have coming up uh, on Skype a Scientist Live. So thank you for joining today. Again, I know I say this a lot, but please donate to our nonprofit uh, to keep this thing up and running. Um, Patreon.com slash Skype a Scientist, paypal.me slash Skype a Scientist. All right, and thank you, Erin, as always, for being with us, you're amazing. Okay, and thank you, Jesse. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Erin. <laughs>